Under what conditions did man devise these value judgments, good and evil? And what value do they themselves possess? Have they hitherto hindered or furthered human prosperity? Are they signs of distress, of impoverishment, of the degeneration of life? Or is there revealed in them, on the contrary, the plentitude, force, and will of life, its courage, certainty, its future, its ability to embrace the void? If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 213 of Embrace the Void, where the will to power is strong, but the flesh to power is weak. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're discussing a very special book about Nietzsche. I want to give a trigger warning here for cancer and death because that might not be obvious from the packaging on this one. So let's make with the philosophical feels. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Dr. Michael Grenke a professor, or as they call it, tutor, at St. John's College and author of the introduction to the recently released War Speak, Nietzsche's Victory Over Nihilism. Michael, would you like to say hi to the void? Oh, yes. I'm sure the void was waiting for my call. <laughs> right. As, a, as an expert in Nietzsche, you would perfectly well be conversant, I assume, with all, <laughs> all dialects of void and abyss and such things. We stare at each other from time to time. Right. Lovingly, effect, maybe not platonically, you know, it's that's right. lots of different ways to stare. So I'm really excited to have you on to chat about this. This is a very interesting story. Before we get to the book, why don't you tell folks a little bit about your background, sort of philosophical interests, that sort of thing? Well, my philosophical interests uh, center around Nietzsche, though I think he's quite broad as a philosophic thinker and as a human being. I've been devoted to Nietzsche ever since I met him. Mm -mm. And I uh, have been studying Nietzsche now for about 38 years. I wrote mm -hmm. my junior thesis in college on Nietzsche and my senior thesis and my PhD. And I've published uh, two and now a third is coming uh, translations of Nietzsche's works, along with some articles. And I've given a lot of lectures on Nietzsche too. Do you uh, look back and cringe at young Michael's uh, interpretations of Nietzsche? Have you sort of like you've evolved along the way with that some? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think uh, Nietzsche, I think himself tries to teach us not to regret our past uh, okay. and not to try to fix it either. That's a good so trick. <laughs> I look back and I try to let go. That's fair. 
That's fair. But also, I, I just, in general, I think uh, as a changing being and a learning being, I expect to change and, mm-hmm. and hope change for the better. Yeah, and I think it's tricky. Nietzsche, to me, seems to be one of the most often sort of misquoted and misunderstood. Like, I'm not an expert, but it seems like a lot of people have a lot of very weird takes on what he's saying a lot of the time. Are there particular sort of misconceptions about him or his work that you might want to disabuse us of as a, as an audience before we dive into the details of this book a little bit? Well, I'd probably say something. Nietzsche's often associated with hatred of certain groups. He's thought to be someone who hates a lot of groups. I don't know that there's anyone that Nietzsche hates. Mm-hmm. He certainly criticizes rather harshly a lot of human beings and human types, but I don't think his criticism is actually animated by hatred. Mm-hmm. And, so, and his general opinion about the whole world and everyone in it and everyone who's ever been in it seems to be that he'd like to turn it to good use, meaning mm-hmm. he seeks to try to find ways in which whatever has fallen to us by way of accident can be turned into something that uh, serves a fruitful and flourishing future. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that. The other thing I maybe I would say, and this relates to the book we're talking about today, Nietzsche is often associated with nihilism and understood to be a nihilist. Yeah. Uh, this book really tries to show the way in which nihilism was a central and serious problem for Nietzsche, but certainly not something that he was devoted to, rather something he was uh, quite opposed to. Yeah. And that seeking was, for ways out. So. That was really interesting. Yeah. From just the title of the book, right? Nietzsche's victory over nihilism. Clearly there's an attempt to sort of push back on a, a narrative, which is, as you say, that he is sort of strongly associated with nihilism. Where do you feel like that misconception comes from? Do you feel like there is some plausibility to that reading or do you think that it's just cherry picking of quotes or what's going on there? I, I, I guess I, I want to say there's, there are things that are plausible that are in, you know, that are badly incorrect. And um, <laughs> Fair enough. there are, I would say there are decisive statements from Nietzsche, which mm-hmm. those who regard him as a nihilist would have to ignore or think somehow he doesn't live up to those statements in a deep way mm-hmm. uh, that would indicate his stance in this regard. I think even, for instance, the end of the second essay of the genealogy of morals is very explicit about opposing nihilism. Uh-huh. But I think the basis of this thought probably just comes from the strength of Nietzsche's criticisms. Mm-hmm. So he's very often seen to be tearing other thought down and to leave nothing standing in its wake. And I think especially those who tend to think of him as nihilistic find his positive teachings Mm-hmm. His non-critical statements, not to be so compelling, and maybe you know, just not to be as clear or as decisive as they want them to be. And so mm-hmm. there's this impression, really, that what Nietzsche gives you is he he comes in and undermines everything. Mm-hmm. He's a skeptic in this kind of way. You know, that's the way, and he is opposed. I think maybe again to a a, a kind of straightforward and simple uh, sense that we have access to eternal truths mm-hmm. that often is taken to mean that his position is nihilistic because he's denying the, the eternity of truth or the absolute character of human knowing. 
and I guess sort of the impression that we have of him as sort of God slayer, right? In the sense of sure. undermining, you know, religious belief for a lot of people that is going to be very closely associated in their minds with a kind of nihilism or abandoning of, of certain morals. And it sounds like on certain, you know, grossly incorrect, but not implausible readings of, of the genealogies, right? Stuff, talk of the will to power and things like that could give a nihilistic impression. So... Um, I'm excited to talk about this book then to sort of push back a little bit on that narrative. So let's talk about the backstory of this book a little bit first, because obviously it's somewhat unusual to be doing a book tour for a book that you wrote an introduction to. So do you want to sort of explain how we come to be here in this circumstance? Well, What's so our genealogy? This book, yeah, this book, Warspeak, is, uh, of course, the the product of my close friend, Lise Van Boxel. Uh, we were friends for about a quarter of a century and uh, spent a lot of time thinking and talking together. She wrote this book as a kind of, I think it began as a revision of her dissertation, but it developed over time into a separate set of thoughts. And really uh, she put it together and, and it was accepted by the publisher right before she got a diagnosis of lung cancer, uh, and the cancer was very aggressive, mm. and so she didn't last very long after the diagnosis. So the work as it stands is in the form that she uh, authorized it with a couple of um, a couple of small changes, probably in, in terms of just cleaning up some parts of the manuscript that I oversaw, and the biggest change was the writing of the introduction. She intended to write an introduction. Um, mm -hmm. although also occasionally talked with me about the possibility that I would write the introduction. I think mm. pr primarily because she felt that uh, the introduction should be of a somewhat different character than the rest of the book, uh, mm. um, a blunter, more direct <laughs> kind of character. And in a way, a less maybe a less fully uh, funded and fully established sort of approach to the thought that might just lead some people in and help them to follow what is a close reading of the genealogy and can be a difficult read. Mm. That's such a brutal labor of love. Speaking as someone who's also spent a lot of time around cancer, that's a pretty horrifying thing to go through in that kind of way. Um, are there, I'm curious, any particular parts of the book that carry a special meaning for you having gone through it in this kind of process? Well, maybe I'd say one thing. I, I mean, I think Lise was very inclined to try to focus her thought on what she thought were the the best authors she could find. And so this is why she was deeply interested in Nietzsche and to focus her thought on what she thought were the biggest and most important problems. So the book is focused on a kind of central problem of Nietzsche. But the way Lise leads in is... I find very charming and impressive. It's that she reads mm -hmm. this little anecdote that Nietzsche tells in his preface about his own 13 year old self <laughs> trying to figure out the, the theological problem of evil mm -hmm. and uses it, I think as a kind of key to work her way into his philosophic development and thoughts about how, how beings accumulate changes and modifications over time which is essentially the evolutionary character of the 
work that really is is represented by that thought of uh, genealogy of how things develop over time and become modifications of what was there before. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she takes that little anecdote and tries to work out, you know, a, a kind of compre- somewhat comprehensive picture of Nietzsche's philosophy centered around the problem that Nietzsche had already centered himself around when he was 13. Yeah, I found the book really enjoyable when I was reading it. It it certainly is, as you say, a close reading and and sort of dense at some points. Um, but at the same time, there is this very coherent, clear sort of narrative about the diagnosis of the problem and the attempts to address the problem. And yeah, I think just some very clear sort of tying together of um, Nietzsche's own personal experiences with sort of what's going on um, in the work. Um, and I, yeah, I just found it, it, it is sort of very pleasurable, um, despite being, I think, you know, aimed more towards sort of other people who would have some background, I would think, in Nietzsche a little bit. Um, so let's talk about the central problem of this text. So first of all, what does war speak? What does that mean? <laughs> I, it's a, a way of writing and speaking, I think, that's designed to engage in a kind of psychological combat with what is presumed to uh, be an undeclared war that's already going on. Hmm. Uh, that is a silent war sort of situation. A, well, yeah, a silent and um, deliberately hidden war hmm. in, in the sense, the story that I think Nietzsche tells in the genealogy of morals is that a slave class or an underclass that has been suppressed and damaged by its slavish condition in, in the sense that it has been consumed by a kind of pent up desire for revenge or what Nietzsche calls resentiment in French. Mm-hmm. And that becomes clever enough to try to convince its oppressors and its masters that their way of being in the world is really wrong and it evolves into a whole psychological attempt to undermine human beings who feel like they've done well in life and to Mm -hmm. undermine enjoyment of natural human impulses like those that led to war and conquest Mm -hmm. so the presumption is that there's been an an undeclared psychological war substantially successful for two thousand years of basically denigrating this world Mm -hmm. and this worldly life under the pretense of offering a higher standard in an afterlife in another world of things that don't change and an afterlife that prizes the the downtrodden, the meek, Mm -hmm. the humble, those who, who don't really succeed in this, in this life. Warspeak is joining the that battle from the other side, defending, I think, human excellence and its possibilities against what's been done to it for about 2,000 years. And so it's meant to be an attempt to uh, have a kind of writing that has a liveliness, a courage that combines, I think, what one finds combined in warriors, which is mm-hmm. a, a kind of comical joy while in the presence of danger and of serious things. 
It's like a strong Hemingway vibe coming off of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Hemingway, who would invite you probably, let's go box or let's go fight a bull. Right. Who wants to fight? It's my, my favorite line from Hemingway. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot I want to unpack. That was a really rich kind of telling. And it, like some parts of that story are appealing to me and other parts are sort of anxiety, red flag inducing kinds of situations. Sure. So let's, let's work through that some a little bit. Right. So on the one side, you know, the atheist in me wants to agree with the parts about how religious dogma and morality has been used to, you know, undercut human excellence in various kinds of ways as a form of control, right? I'm sympathetic to the, the pushback on that in the modern world. And at the same time, when we cast this in terms of the weak and the strong, and we make it that like there's a giant conspiracy amongst the weak to oppress the strong in this kind of way, then it takes on a very dangerous sort of um, conspiratorial, right, precursor to a lot of anti-Semitic kind of conspiracy vibe. Though obviously we can talk about like his actual beliefs on that some if you want. Um, but so how do you talk about, how do you think about that narrative? Like, what do you think that we should, you know, take away from this? Is it like literally true? Is it, um, you know, true, but we need to be careful when we talk about who we are, you know, assigning to the group that is the the you know, the secret masters or something like that? Well, probably this, uh, how would I say, the complication I would mention is that Nietzsche tells uh, a speculative story about human prehistory, you know, bef mostly before recorded time or even pre-biblical Judaism, I think is a lot of his target of where this story happens. And uh, speculative, it is a likely story or a set of guesses based on thin and thinner clues. Uh, often just the etymology of a particular word might contain okay. for Nietzsche evidence of this kind of history. That's his version of archaeology. That's the, the very primitive story, I think, is maybe very literal, but in its primitivity, it's very specu speculative and can't be confirmed, I want to say. The wrinkle that really ensues is Nietzsche presents this war as something that in modern human beings is, is often internalized within us so that uh, the strong and the weak are aspects of our own being rather than distinct individuals. Not, not that one couldn't still draw some distinction, but I think modern and complicated human beings have, in this understanding, a mixed heritage from both sides a great deal of our development of our really rich internal life, our intelligence, our cleverness belongs in, in Nietzsche's account to the, the developments that happened to a, a set of human beings that were enslaved, that were oppressed, that were forced to find alternate methods to, to, to direct expression of their desires. And mm -hmm. on the other side, that complication often leads us to be at war with ourselves or within ourselves, to be self-sabotaging, to be unhappy. Even the indirection itself, the, the subtlety of our, is in some way not so satisfactory as doing what you want when you want to do it directly or getting what you want right when you want it and not having anybody come in between. Mm -hmm. So there's that primitive urge to have each, each of our 
desires immediately gratified that hangs over us psychically while we've become so psychically complex that we're almost perpetually in a kind of delay. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the the war that he talks about that way hasn't, uh, it's ongoing as he presents it, but it's also substantially won by the slave revolt or the, the reactive type. Nietzsche in responding to it is seeking some way in to take what has developed and turn it to something that's still capable of the kind of, how do you say, simple or relatively simple unified feeling of happiness that used to attend the the strong, the simple strong, who really were, I would say, extraordinarily stupid. Okay, great. So that's a, a lovely sort of unpacking there. What just to be very clear, like how does Nietzsche tie that story that you just told to the kind of diagnosis of the problem of nihilism? Is it as straightforward as just that like the slave, you know, the Neoplatonic slave cult cut us off from meaning, <laughs> so we just got to go back to being, you know, warrior poets again or something like that? I, I think Nietzsche really is committed to the thought that you know, going back isn't an option. Mm-hmm. But he does think that something, especially about human beings, at least certain human beings' capacity to be satisfied with their lives and the conditions of their lives, has been threatened by the efforts that uh, a damaged, reactive class of human beings have made to try to carve out both, I think, power for themselves in the world and also. And, that, and that's a kind of literal sense, and also just opportunities for psychic satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So that there have been human beings who have been denied direct expression of their wants and needs, have sought all sorts of ways, including mm-hmm. vengeful, subterranean, psychological assaults on the human beings who were doing better in the world and who are feeling better about how they, how they were in the world. And yeah. the it psychological that, warfare, right? He effectively. Oh, yeah, the, very yeah. much so. Very much so. So the aftermath is something about trying to, to take all the really powerful capacities of the inner psyche that have been developed in, in connection with this revenge project and turn it into something that, is more spontaneous and less directed toward revenge. Mm-hmm. Something that has a better chance of having uh, belonging to a human being who could be integrated in themselves and pursue what they want without being concerned about what has been done to them or who's done it. And that would be our Ubermensch, right? The individual who can do those things and not be concerned in that way. Yeah, that, that sounds right to me. Although the Ubermensch is, um, pretty enigmatic i think in in Uh Nietzsche's actual presentation he says very interesting things like it'll be the sea in which the filth of humanity will be diluted away it'll be a lightning that cleanses the world you know and and Mm -hmm. i don't think by the way in what i'm saying here i don't mean in any respect to deny that nietzsche considers and envisages um potentially quite violent clashes between human beings who have different needs and desires 
but also just uh-huh. potentially quite cruel things that might serve the the future of humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get detailed about sort of what he is pointing to when he says this thing is a neoplatonic slave cult because you know one one mm-hmm. person's neoplatonic slave cult is another person's social contract for preventing you know the war of all against all or or might sure. makes right or various things like that so what is it that the the slavers did that um undercut the warrior ethos or something like that is it fairness well, uh- no, primarily, I, I think it's um, <laughs> Nietzsche presents it in in almost um, Aesopian fables, I suppose. Uh, in the on the genealogy of morals, for instance, he presents it as an attempt by lambs to convince eagles that they have freedom to stop being predatory, mm-hmm. uh, to convince them that their nature is wrong. And to convince them even of things like the principle that they have metaphysical free will. And so they they can be other than they are. And so they're to be blamed for being as they are because they really are free not to be that way. <laughs> so, okay. So there's a couple of things there, right? Because I certainly don't believe in free will, but I do think there's something to the idea that human beings, unlike lions and lambs, can act differently than our, to some extent, I think, can change our behavior, have more ability to alter our behavior. I won't say that we're like free of our evolutionary genealogy, mm-hmm. right? And by gene- genealogy here, I want, we should point out, I guess we just mean sort of the history of a thing, right? The where it comes from of a thing. So like, I don't think that we're perfectly rational or perfectly ethical beings, but what I get worried about here is, you know, is Nietzsche saying that all ethics that constrains the behavior of the great is immoral is sort of part of this psychological war or is it only the more sort of authoritarian you know religiously based kinds of uh, suppression of freedom that he's worried about i think nietzsche wants to maybe say first and foremost that the whatever the individual human beings or human types impulses are those things in themselves ought have to be faced as matters of fate for those human beings. And the sense they are the way they feel the way they feel and they want what they want. Mm -hmm. And then he's not, I think at all saying you have to let them do what they want, but you have to, if you're trying to be fair and honest and accurate, you have to recognize that they don't necessarily have the responsibility for their own traits and for the, even for the behaviors perhaps that come mm-hmm. from those traits. That mm-hmm. is, they didn't make themselves and they didn't give themselves their properties. And they're not free to just simply by, by an act of fiat disown their own tendencies and their own desires. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a question of what, what you do with them and how you, how you regard them. Yes. So let's move in that direction a little bit, right? Like, um, what are the ways by which we can make space in the world for what Nietzsche thinks is missing without sort of letting people run amok on each other in harmful kinds of ways? Here, probably the plasticity of our psyche is a real help. 
Okay. So there's um, maybe in Nietzsche's understanding, there's no fixed fixed goal that any particular psychic desire really needs to fulfill. What it needs to do is use its ability, do something. It needs to do something. Mm-hmm. And that means it can be gratified or satisfied with many kinds of diversions. I think even when Nietzsche looked at Greek culture, he saw many warlike impulses that were gratified in the Greek athletic contests. Mm-hmm. Maybe not fully or absolutely in all respects, but depend or even the the contests for the tragedies, even mm-hmm. you know competition folded into poetic creation. And I think with more and more psychic sophistication, it seems like Nietzsche thinks we really can have a, a healthy psyche that vents what it needs to vent and expresses what it needs to express. But we have to not villainize the the desires right away. Mm-hmm. Those things lead us to reject ourselves, to try to bottle ourselves up. And then you get even worse developments, I think. But particularly, I think, the kind of developments that make it impossible for human beings to like themselves, to like their own natures. You know, Otherwise, you, you look at yourself and maybe those few strange drives and urges that you are aware of, you think, boy, I'm really a dirty, creepy thing. I'm low. I'm wicked. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and that poisons your your ability to, I think, enjoy the world. So, being the Ubermensch here then is not necessarily equivalent to a kind of John Galti, you know, <laughs> being a great man of history thing. It could be the dude, right? If you're the oh, dude yeah, yeah. and you're and you're truly comfortable with your dudeness, right? You are, in a sense, being what Nietzsche wants you to be, right? Separate from like the constraints of you know your cultural mores or something like that. I I like the reference and. Uh... I think it's it's appropriate, uh, but maybe I would emphasize this: just Nietzsche envisages a lot of different ways, and mm-hmm. he thinks we can't help but be experimental mm-hmm. in part because maybe there's no one way that that really is going to satisfy all of us, and we can't tell for certain what what human possibilities might be in the future. Mm-hmm. So, so let's, yeah. Experiment. I would say life experiment is, um, how would I say, authorized. And 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 if you want uh-huh. to say human experimentation, I think Nietzsche wants to say, well, yeah, you can't avoid it. So there's a kind of fundamental liberalism here about like leaning towards a society that allows for more experimentation would be part of what's key to a healthier human world. Um, And it's interesting that you mention experimentation there. One of the things that struck me in the book was that in the discussion of the will to power, uh, she says that the will to power is a thought experiment, um, which Mm -hmm. is not a way that I had understood this before. Can you sort of explain a little bit sort of what the will to power is and what it it means to say that it's a thought experiment? Um, Because I think that'll help us get a better sense of what Nietzsche has in mind when he's talking about human nature. Well, I'll try to take uh, this question in, in the, since I think it were two questions, really, mm-hmm. I'll try to take them in opposite order. Okay. What the will to power is. And I, I, there's uh, the 13th section of um, Beyond Good and Evil is meant to try to 
debunk the notion that a will to life is a primary urge and, and present the will to life, even the will to life, as just an expression of a more fundamental will, the will mm-hmm. to power. Mm-hmm. There, what Nietzsche says very succinctly, I think, is that a living being wants more than anything else to just let out its power. Uh, he mm-hmm. uses the German word auslassen, let out. Just It's like laissez-faire or something like this. But really... There, Nietzsche, I think, is thinking of the will to power as a primary defining aspect of living beings in their desire to to do things. Even maybe the amoeba Mm -hmm. wants to let out its power. And it's not particularly directed towards anything other than expression, letting Uh out. So by letting out here, do we mean like interacting with your environment? Is that like the central idea or part of it? Well, I think the sense in which the will to power is thought of as an active drive, it's not responding to an environment and it's asserting itself toward the environment, one might say. Right. So when the the amoeba reaches out its pseudopod and grabs something, right, that is the will to power. But maybe this being or some more general form of life might just flail about asserting itself in any direction it can without clear Mm -hmm. intention. And then you could understand the interaction with the world to sort of sort out what is and isn't possible. Yeah. I currently have a nine month old puppy, so I'm extremely familiar (laughs) with this phenomenon right now. Well, you know, the, the, the living things that have survived already perhaps have a kind of, um, I would say, modesty and compromise built into them mm-hmm. the living things that maybe are just expressing this urge might do many disastrous things for their own health and their own pre- preservation uh because they just try to do things you know the puppy mm-hmm. chases a car mm-hmm. that sort of thing mm-hmm. but then the will to power is a thought experiment i think the way least describes it in war speak and she's following i think the discussion in the 36th section of beyond good and evil There, Nietzsche proposes that um, proper methodology, the morality of method, as he calls it, demands that if we can explain some part of the world with one principle, we ought to try to explain other parts of the world with that principle as well, and carry out that experiment as far as it goes until it goes to nonsense, unzin, he says. So he proposes that the will to power is... uh, a good way to understand our own inner psychic processes. Mm-hmm. And then he suggests, could we not perhaps explain the, you know, more than that, more than our inner life, the aspects of the external world. And he even says, for instance, could we not understand the non-living things mm-hmm. in terms of will to power as well as, as I want to say preforms of the living. Mm-hmm. So the, general extension of the will to power as a principle of trying to explain the world is presented as a kind of experiment motivated, I think, by economy of method. Mm. And what falls out of that experiment, do you feel like? Probably a kind of sense in which our own inner workings are not so different from the rest of the, our experience of the world to the extent to which the, the will to power explanation into, for instance, if, if you can do will to power quantum physics, 
mm-hmm. then quantum physics looks something like our own inner psyche. And that would, I think, amongst other things, make us feel more at home in the world. Mm. There's an interesting but it's also yeah. Yeah, go ahead. a question of when do we run into nonsense? That is, Nietzsche really did propose, you know, that experiment falls down when, when you push it to the point of nonsense, when you find that in order to uh, explain what you're thinking about requires some other principle or, or, mm-hmm. or seems to, well, really requires another principle, wh- whatever that principle is, whether it's supplementary or whether it's actually opposed to the will to power. When you reach that point, you've, you've run out and the experiment stops. Yeah, there's an interesting kind of like weird paradox, it feels like, underlying all of this, where, you know, there's this sense in which as the Ubermensch, you, the goal is to be asserting your nature on the universe in this kind of way, but in realize, but like, ultimately, what you're realizing is that your nature is not fundamentally separate from the nature of the universe. So there's no really... You know, it stops being like a you that's like smashing things around or something like that. And and like you recognize the fundamental kind of interconnected. It almost reminded me of something like a Spinoza or Buddhist kind of ideas about, um, you know, the being and connected with the world sort of the Tao or even the Tao, the Tao is kind of being in flow with uh, the will of the, the will to power of the universe in this kind of way. Well, I, I think even this, I would say, this question of nihilism turns out to be, mm-hmm. in many respects, our own will turning in, on itself, mm-hmm. um, not not finding any effective modes of expression in the in what we regard as the external world, and turning on ourselves and treating our inner inner world as as a world. In, in mm-hmm. which it can do things. I mean, I think to some degree, quite um, quite harsh things, considerable cruelty, mm-hmm. as one might find in the religious traditions or what gets called the ascetic tradition. Self-harm, mm-hmm. self-diminishment, um, all these sorts of things turn out to be sort of last-ditch efforts of a will that's looking for something to do and only finds its own internal realm in which it can be operating mm-hmm. so it's hedonism and it does crash about there i want to say right all right so hedonism instead um so yeah mm-hmm. what are what do we do then practically speaking if we can't go backwards right and we need to to reconnect so for example one thing that i think comes up in the book maybe you can explain this a little bit more what is the role of reading and writing as sort of key to yeah. avoiding nihilism <laughs> well uh, maybe i'll emphasize writing although i think the distinction between reading and writing maybe erodes a bit. Hmm. That is, finding some way to interpret things so that you can find a positive goal. Maybe one way I could describe it is this. I think in least identifies what happens at the beginning of the third essay of the Genealogy of Morals, which is asking the, the title question, what is the meaning of the of ascetic ideals and finds Nietzsche talking about seven different human types, each of for each of whom the meaning of the ascetic ideal is different. Hmm. And then she goes through that in detail. And the initial meaning of the ascetic ideal seems to indicate these pe- these people and their types adopt 
modes of being that are sort of opposed to life. But I think the deeper look shows that this is still just a living being trying to let out in the ways that are available to it. So these are sort of truncated, limited, or even internalized expressions of will to power. And so each of them really represents some kind of gratification of a life urge. Hmm. I think what Lee suggested about Nietzsche's project in that third essay then is to take each of these modes of life expression that these different human types found in the ascetic ideal in nihilistic pursuits and to preserve them and try to combine them in a human form that wouldn't be self-destructive, that wouldn't mm -hmm. be headed toward a dead end. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I got a strong kind of book 10 of Nicomachean ethics vibe where I was like, <laughs> is Nietzsche saying that the real answer is that everybody should become a philosopher? Well, I think out of modesty of sorts, Nietzsche <laughs> doesn't in expect everyone to become a philosopher. And I, I mean, even, for instance, Nietzsche, I think, is bold enough to say things like, Kant's not a philosopher, and Ooh. Hegel's not a philosopher. That'll go well They're, on philosophy Twitter, let me tell you. He could, he could right. rack up well, some bad I mean, follows with those burns. No, but he really, it's a an extremely rare sort of thing. He, I think Nietzsche recognizes those individuals as human beings of tremendous intellect, mm -hmm. but he doesn't see in them the kind of personal involvement in the things that they are uh, involving themselves with hmm. that really mark philosophy. And so he thinks you could pick up Hegel or Kant, set them in front of any subject matter, and they would just tick away like a clock more or less. Now, I think he recognizes no human being is exactly like that, but human beings can approximate this kind of mm -hmm. clockwork, disinterested, one who just wants to know stuff kind of thing. And, and Nietzsche thinks that's not what philosophy is like. Philosophy is more full-blooded. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't expect, I think, a world of philosophers, but he may very well be saying uh, that the best that human beings, any human being could be, would be to be a philosopher. Mm. So it is the best of all lives, if not, even if no one, had, again, very Aristotle feeling to me, right? Like, this is what everyone, we would want everyone to be doing, but not everyone's going to get there kind of situation. Right. Even in, in the guise of the Übermensch, as, as Nietzsche presents it, mm -hmm. the first uh, speech about the Superman that's given in Thus Spoke Zarathustra gets interrupted. So there's a sort of direct talk about the Superman, but the crowd is impatient and doesn't really like it, and they interrupt. <laughs> and then Zarathustra tells a story, or he, he recasts his speech and offers a kind of different approach which just lists all sorts of tasks that human beings could be involved in that would help the Superman, mm -hmm. like prepare the earth for the Superman, he even says prepare the animals in the earth for the Superman or uh -huh. make a home on the earth for the Superman, that sort of thing. And those are ways in which human beings can participate in the best life, but on their own terms and within their own limits. That is, they can be associated with philosophic lives. And maybe this would be different from Book 10 of the Ethics, which I think those, those philosophers are quite solitary. 
mm-hmm. they're even past friendship in their contemplation. And Nietzsche's suggestion seems to be that other human beings can be involved in the support of philosophy and in some measure of appreciation of the philosophic life and, and its achievements in a way that elevates the lives of those other human beings as well. Mm. Maybe not up, as good as the philosophic life, but they can be mm-hmm. um, elevated by the, the association. Interestingly, that ends up getting closer to how I feel, which is that anybody who wants to call themselves a philosopher is a philosopher. Um, and because we're all doing embodied philosophy all the time, it sort of seems. Um, so we're starting to get close to the end here. We're running out of time. I'm curious how we can, uh, you know, we've been talking about how we apply this in our own personal lives. Some, what do you see about applying this to like modern political concerns? Because I feel that there are lots of versions of the narrative that you've been describing, uh, the sort of Nietzschean narrative running around and not necessarily doing things that Nietzsche would be super excited about. So, I mean, I think, for example, like I referenced John Galt earlier, right? There's a strong strain of conservative libertarianism that, um, you know, sees economic constraints as being the sort of thing that's holding back the ubermensch right and then you have like the cult the culture war you know where i feel uh, a, a big strain of anti-wokeness is this idea that the woke are asserting a new kind of religion right to go back uh, to this yeah. narrative right a new kind of priesthood that will constrain the great men of the world and prevent them from you know ushering in whatever new age is coming next or something like that so I, I'm curious, how do you how do you think about those things as a Nietzsche, Nietzsche scholar? And do you have any sense of like what he would think about those interpretations or ap- potential applications of his thinking? Well, I, I guess Nietzsche himself was um, interested, I think, in a variety of approaches to these matters. Mm-hmm. Some some quite private small groups of friends cultivating what they can some some global mm-hmm. um, he was interested i think in what could be made of human beings if they all work together on you know worldwide projects mm-hmm. and i do think nietzsche would would really believe i think because he says things like this about the reformation for instance mm-hmm. he thought um, the secularization of the church which was regarded as corruption, was really a, a terrific development that had a lot of promise for the future of humanity. And it was, re, you know, it was destroyed by the Reformation who wanted to, that wanted to go back to pure religious sentiments. Hmm. Uh, so there are times, I think, where Nietzsche thinks uh, there's a kind of burgeoning buildup of human possibilities and potential that gets can be derailed by people who are too soft, too unfocused, or even just too narrowly concerned with the, the, the lit, their own life and the limits of their own mortality. He really is interested in not just the great human beings, for instance, but the ones that come after the great human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he says in Beyond Good and Evil, uh, a, a nation is just, or a people actually, is just a detour of nature to get to six or seven great men and then to get beyond them. So there's there's a kind of way in which Nietzsche doesn't want to see anything stop or there's not 
a final goal. You know, whatever heights we can reach, he wants to reach further once we get there mm-hmm. and not be satisfied. So I think in some of the movements today that maybe want to tear things up, uh, this is probably some sympathy from Nietzsche, but I do think he thinks you should only tear things up when they have played out their capacities. Uh, otherwise, there are reasons to conserve the good things that are already there. Um, do, do you think it's fair to say that his thinking is to some extent constrained or limited by this kind of great person view? E- even if, like, as you say, he also cares about what comes after them, right? It's still that point of, like, you know, we need these great people to do these great things rather than seeing, you know, progress as the result of a bunch of normal people going around doing normal people stuff. Yeah, I, I think Nietzsche does think about this and because I think in, in essence he regards um, modern democratic movements as adopting the strategy of trying to replace human greatness with human cooperation, if I could put it that way. Hmm. Committees replace individuals assemblies replace leaders. Uh, I do think Nietzsche probably has something of a, uh, well, probably a classical opinion of democracy, that it's, right. that it's not Hobbes the best. It feels like. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, I, I've been reading Hobbes just recently, and mm-hmm. I'm struck by how many uh, human beings Hobbes will not include in his mm. commonwealth. Interesting. Especially, he Uh talks about the Commonwealth, for instance, in one passage, uh, as if it's the building of a stone edifice. Mm -hmm. There are certain rocks that are that have. He says too much asperity. uh, It means they're odd shaped, I guess. But and they're too hard for the shapers to pound into the right shape. And Mm -hmm. so he says, you just have to leave them aside. Uh, (laughs) But the the rocks are people here. Well. But for people, greater or lesser is important, I think, for our sense of admiration and our appreciation of human capacities and abilities. But even leaving that aside, there's just people who don't fit in. Mm -hmm. And Hobbes is pretty ruthless about um, excluding them. And being excluded from the Commonwealth is leaving you in the state of nature to be treated as an enemy by anyone who finds you, which Uh is really a very harsh is, is Nietzsche similarly harsh, do you feel like? or My sense is Nietzsche very much is much more committed to trying to make use of everybody. Mm-hmm. But that might not satisfy everybody. Who wants to be made use of? Mm-hmm. And he's interested in longer-term projects than those that span a single human lifespan. But, that all, but as they say in economics, who eats in the short term? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, There's one other thing that sort of jumped out at me in the sort of attempts to discuss some of the solution side of this is the talk of moral scruples. I think people will be a little surprised to to Mm. hear Nietzsche talking about his moral scruples. How does he understand that concept? And and in what way is it a part of this kind of cluster of concerns that we're discussing? Well, I mean, probably the two, the kind of two different connections to morality that, that Nietzsche sees in himself. I mean, one is what he regards, I think, as remnants of his his heritage mm-hmm. that continue to linger around in him. Uh, this, again, is if we understand ourselves to be beings with history, 
some of what we have now is an inheritance from our ancestors or even their ancestors or even pre-human ancestors. Mm-hmm. So there's some of Nietzsche's moral commitments he regards as, particularly, for instance, uh, his commitment to intellectual honesty. Mm-hmm. I think he regards as a kind of artifact of his heritage, a kind of peculiarity, although he does also regard it as <laughs> one of his in, inner drives that um, has found that it can express itself by being cruel to him, by making him face the strangeness of new things, the difference of things that don't fit in, in a way that maybe many people try to mm. gloss over. The way you describe that. The, other, the way you describe oh, that. Gonna, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just funny the way you described that there made me imagine that his ancestors on the plains were like properly citing each other so as to be intellectually honest <laughs> or something like that. Like they had really, really yeah. fair peer review processes back then. Well, sorry, he does say things like uh, you can't, you really can't uh, get rid of what your ancestors did. So, for instance, I think he says, probably meaning Kant. If your ancestors were clerks, you're going to come up with tables and categories. <laughs> I'm loving all of these uh, trolls. It's really good. He would have been a well, bomb on Twitter. I oh, yeah. Been. I think Nietzsche probably could have spent some wicked hours on an internet chat. Yeah. But the other thing about morality, I think, is just mm-hmm. in some ways, he's he under, Nietzsche understands a primary morality just in that spontaneous desires that you have to do certain things that belong to you and maybe not to everybody that make assertions on the world. Like I want this, so it should be there, Mm, which mm -hmm. may, and it may or may not be there, but they, these demands that one makes on the world are a kind of proto pre-linguistic biological morality that Mm. does impose the same kind of sense of obligation on us that we find in, in more formalized, linguistically expressed moralities. How does that run up against stuff like climate change, right? Because I feel that mm-hmm. sort of one way to look at their current situation is we really took very seriously the idea that if we want something, we'll just make it. Um, but in the making of it, we have produced a lot of really harmful externalities. And now you have a, a movement that, you know, someone might argue is another neoplatonic slave cult out there trying to make you, you know, recycle and eat the certain things and not eat meat and stuff like that. Right. Um, do you feel though, that he would be sort of more sympathetic to the concerns of climate change and addressing it, even if it meant these kind of constraints on one's potential greatness? Yeah, there, I think this is a sort of right in Nietzsche's wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. You have to ask the kind of question, what what do these uh, behaviors that are being asked for, what do they mean for human life? And is the cost worth it? So, you know, there's certain thinkers like Kant, again, if I go back to him, who will say, uh, you know, let the world perish rather than bow to certain demands that make the higher things like philosophy and what he's talking about there or truth. Let the world perish rather than tell an untruth for Kant. Mm-hmm. I do think Nietzsche can definitely can think of that possibility that something could be asked and he would say, it's not worth it. But in general, I think he's essentially recycling in his mindset. That is, he wants to take things and not throw them away. Mm-hmm. He wants to, in the human all to human, he describes himself as uh, wishing to be a fertile field 
hmm. where any seed that falls on it will grow. Interesting. And in a way, it's a kind of equation for him. Am I powerful enough to turn to good whatever I'm given, whatever I find, whatever I inherit? And if mm -hmm. I'm not, is there some way I can try to work on my life and my capacities to make myself powerful enough to turn what I've found and what I've been given, maybe even what I've been challenged with, and turn it into something that really is good and offers a prospect for a, a flourishing human future? Now, if you said save the earth at the price of human greatness, Nietzsche sort of already saw that vision in, in something, uh, the speech of the last man that's in Zarathustra, a human race that exists mostly without any kind of conflict, that is drugged into a certain kind of stupor that has reduced its emotional affects to just blinking at each other, that has reduced erotic affection to just rubbing it together for warmth. Uh, and he, Nietzsche thinks that we could become those kind of people and that could last a very long time, but it would be a kind of horror show. Mm. Uh, he, the picture, one of the more poignant pictures is in that society that he projects in that speech, any human being who feels a little different voluntarily goes into an asylum to be corrected. They, they go to a, mm -hmm. get mentally treated because they feel different. So there are ways in which we could squelch out many aspects of human life that we might not like, but they might be worse once we do it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So ultimately, right at the end here, do you feel like Nietzsche defeats nihilism successfully? <laughs> well, I guess I want to say, you know, it's still going in the world, so he didn't defeat it that way. Mm -hmm. But I do. I think the project that's sketched here and worked out was a defeat of nihilism for him mm -hmm. and might very well be a path that others can follow. I, I tell you again about the personal aspect of this book in some ways after Lisa's diagnosis and when she was undergoing cancer treatment, I was sitting at breakfast one day with her and she, she did what seemed natural to her, turned her mind to trying to figure out how to cure cancer. So mm -hmm. she's got a cancer diagnosis. Her thought is, let's let's talk it through at breakfast and we'll cure cancer. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that in a certain way, she'd written a book that was curing a significant psychic cancer already. So it wasn't that implausible. It was sort of, it was like talking with a pre-Socratic, you know, what is cancer? How does it work? Mm -hmm. How are we going to defeat it? Sort of thing. But this is the way the book takes up. And I think it leads it leads you teasingly and with a bit of riddling to a place where uh, a positive ideal emerges that can replace the nihilistic approach to the world. That sounds really great. For folks who, besides checking out this particular book, um, I always like to end with suggestions for other resources for people, especially people who don't have a lot of background, who might be interested in learning more about this kind of material. Is there anything you'd like to sort of suggest people check out? Uh, there's very fine books written by a man named Lawrence Lampert, who reads a variety of Nietzsche's works and different books uh, very, very carefully. 
And though I don't think he's always entirely correct in his interpretation and from my standpoint, that is, I think he sometimes draws conclusions on insufficient evidence. Mm -hmm. But I think he's a model of really paying attention to a work and trying to squeeze it for all it's got. So those are many books he's written. Okay, I would great. Recommend those. All right, wonderful. Well, um, this has been really fun, Michael. Now, unfortunately, I have to torture you. So okay. this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. <laughs> so what's going to happen for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things and you're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You cannot hedge. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, you don't I'll get to define what those. real means, right? <laughs> okay. Just real or not real. All right. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. Okay. So let's just check things out here first. Do you believe that anything is real? Yes. All right. So let's find out what is real. So the external world, real or not real? Yes. Colors, real or not real? Colors are real. Yes, we see them. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness, real or not real? That's real. Okay. Free will? No, not real. Self, uh, selves or persons? Hmm. Not real. Genders? <laughs> I, can I say I don't know? Nope. Real or not real? <laughs> no. All right. <laughs> Um, I'll say not real. Okay. Races? Clerks are real, so yes. Clerk, the Clerks are a race. Okay. Species? Species. No, not real. Okay. Morality? Yes, real. Rights? Yes, there are rights. Okay. Knowledge? Yes, we know things. God or gods? No. Society? We live in a society. <laughs> so is that, a, is that a real then? That's a real. Okay. Money? Money. Not real. Numbers? Numbers are not real. Fictional characters? Fictional char characters are real. Okay. Love it. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Oh, holes are real mm. chairs chairs are real sandwiches sandwiches are real science science is real natural laws not real beauty yes yeah, that's real love that's real too causality oh not real and finally, time. Time is not real. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? <laughs> like I've said some untruths. <laughs> <laughs> you you did one of the things that I love most, which is saying that fictional characters are real, but God or gods is not, which is That's amongst true. my favorite positions for people to take on these. Um, so that was fun. I really appreciate it. Um, so the book is War Speak again, Nietzsche's Victory Over Nihilism. Um, Michael, do you want to let folks know also where they can find your work as well? Oh, uh, my work, you can find it on Amazon. Okay. <laughs> sure. Are you, you're not on Twitter or anything like that? 
I I am not yet. No, that's a good. You no, know, stay stay not. It's better. You're better that way. It's better for everyone. <laughs> it's really. Um, so thank you, Michael. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Aaron. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, and the Illegal Police Chaplaincy in Covina, California, and the Theocracy Now, Chad T., Jesse Urbanowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And thanks, as always, to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Doopy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, uh, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast, and leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to our episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, no matter how alienated you feel, you are the void and the void is you. 